We live in the age of sequels. Movies come to us these days in franchises, especially action movies with superheroes and the Fast and the Furious or fill-in-the-blank spy. I remember the days when movies had a beginning, a middle, and an end. When I was a teenager, I was very upset when I went to see Back to the Future and it ended with a to-be-continued. I wanted to ask for my money back. I paid good money for this ticket, and now I have to wait a year for the next installment. I suppose much of that is financial, too much money to be made to let something go. But I think sequels have a, a certain resonance with us because we don't want our own story to end. We don't want to go into eclipse. These days you hear a lot about people pressing through middle age and wanting to have a second act career. You can find out a lot online about how to reboot your career in your 50s, which is just around the corner for me. One of the things I love about the Lord of the Rings trilogy is that it doesn't end when you think it's going to end. Tolkien's story of these halflings known as hobbits that get caught up in this great battle between good and evil that they only partly understand. They spend the better part of three books just trying to survive the danger that is right in front of them. And when they finally do accomplish their great objective, Tolkien doesn't end the story there. Now, if you've watched the movies only, I pity you and you won't know this, because Peter Jackson thought the chapter called The Scouring of the Shire was anticlimactic. He's wrong, but in that chapter, the hobbits Frodo and Sam and Merry and Pippin return home to find that everything is a mess. Their once vanquished enemy has set up shop there and, and is doing all manner of mischief in their hometown. And so there's a bit of a sequel in which the hobbits have to summon resources that they didn't know they had to rise up and do what must be done. And though the critics largely miss it, it's not anticlimax. Tolkien's point is that the story we find ourselves in is like that. The great cosmic battle between good and evil is ongoing. Challenge follows challenge for us. A new day calls for fresh courage. The battles past steal us for what lies ahead. We've come this morning to the end of the book of Exodus. We've spent the first half of 2023 in this epic book of how God took an extended family of 70-some children, descendants of Abraham, and delivers them from slavery through the blood of the Lamb at the Passover. He enters into a covenant with them at Mount Sinai and gives them his law. And even as we've been considering the past few weeks, he restores them after an idolatrous rebellion which could have spelled their doom. And while the book ends, we understand it to be part of an ongoing story, the storyline of redemption that runs from Genesis 3 all the way through Revelation 21. Even for the ancient Israelites, this is in many ways the beginning of their story, the first installment of their journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. 
And as we've argued in so many ways, their story is our story. Their experience is our experience. Uh, People called out of slavery into the wilderness of this world to worship God in obedience to his word. As we come to the last chapters of the book, we're left with a precious truth that we need to grab onto with both hands. God dwells in the midst of a repentant people. And that's our main idea this morning. If you're taking notes, you may want to write that down. God dwells in the midst of a repentant people. We'll consider it in two points. Number one, the fruit of repentance. The fruit of repentance. And number two, the dwelling place of God. The dwelling place of God. It's my prayer that our study this morning will galvanize you for the fresh challenges that await you even just this next week. So let's think first about the fruit of repentance. And you'll want to take your copy of God's Word or grab the Pew Bible in front of you and turn to page 70. I want you to lay eyes on our text, give you something of a flyover of where we're going. So Exodus 35, the first three verses read, Moses assembled the whole Israelite community and said to them, These are the things the Lord has commanded you to do. For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day shall be your holy day, a day of Sabbath rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it is to be put to death. Do not light a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. Now, Moses had been up on Mount Sinai receiving instructions about the tabernacle and how the people were to worship God. We, we read about that in chapters 26 to 31. And then chapters 32 to 34 record that disastrous and idolatrous sin of the golden calf and how God restored the people in response to the intercession of Moses. The covenant is then renewed, and here Moses begins where chapter 31 ended, telling them that they're supposed to have this one in seven rest for worship. And let's be reminded that worship at its core is resting in what God has done to save us by his grace. That was true then. It's true now. We take the first day of the week to remember afresh the grace of God. Verse 4, Moses continues by recounting what he heard from God up on the mountain. Look at verse 4 there. Moses said to the whole Israelite community, this is what the Lord has commanded. From what you have, take an offering for the Lord. Uh, They do this. You can read about it in verse 20 and following. So so an offering, but then skip down to verse 10. All who are skilled among you are to come and make everything the Lord has commanded. And then a little bit later in verse 30 and following, we're going to read about that. So Moses has the specifications for the tabernacle, but they need materials for it. So they're going to take this offering, and then they're going to need to work to build it. So that's chapter 35 through the beginning of chapter 36. And then if you look at chapter 36, verse 8, we're going to get really detailed. I don't know if you guys are the kind of people that read instruction manuals. Uh, I praise God for the detailed-oriented, the engineers among us. When I buy electronics, I plug it in, turn it on, and start pushing buttons and see what happens. But the engineers 
will like what follows. And, and I want you to kind of see what happens. So chapter 36, verse 8. And all the craftsmen among the workmen made the tabernacle with ten curtains. They were made of fine twined linen, and blue and purple and scarlet yarns with cherubim skillfully worked. All right, that's one verse. But if you hold your finger in your Bible and flip back, you can't do this on a mobile device, I guess, but go back to chapter 26 and look at verse 1. So from 36, verse 8, to 26, verse 1, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns, you shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. So you shall make, in chapter 26, 1, becomes, and they made, in chapter 36, verse 8. And that repetition is going to go all the way through the next number of chapters. So they're going to make the, the curtains which separated the, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, from the camp of Israel. Uh, they have to make both the frames and the curtains themselves, and then they're going to have to make the actual tent inside that outer court. They're going to have to make the furniture that go in that tent, so the, the table of the bread of the presence and the lampstand and the altar of incense, and then inside the Holy of Holies, instructions for making the Ark of the Covenant. Outside in the courtyard, they're going to have to make a, an altar for burnt offerings and and one for ceremonial washing. So, so all of the instructions that were given in chapters 26 to 31 become in these chapters, and they made, and they made, and they made. So a detailed report. We're also told all the materials that they used, even the clothes that the priests have to wear. They do it all. Turn to chapter 39, verse 32. Thirty-nine, thirty-two reads this way. Thus, all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished, and the people of Israel did according to all the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. They bring everything to Moses after it's completed. Chapter 40, they will then set it up. Now, let me ask you a question that may have occurred to you. Is it okay for you to skip these chapters in your Bible reading plan? All right, that's a very practical question. Uh, I hope that you have a Bible reading plan. It's a great way to start your day reading a chapter of Scripture or more. Maybe, maybe you want to end your day that way. You should have a Bible reading plan. Take advantage of God's Word that's available to you. Uh, my answer to the question is that Paul says that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful so that we could be equipped for every good work. So no, you can't skip these chapters, okay? And I want to suggest to you that they're actually precious to us for a number of reasons. Uh, what they represent in many ways is what the people of Israel did after their greatest failure, the aftermath of their idolatry. I mean, you can't fail worse than they did. So I think what's actually being recorded here is the fruit of their repentance. Remember John the Baptist said that in all his preaching, produce fruit 
in keeping with repentance. Don't just say, I trust in the Lord, I believe in the Lord, I'm going to follow the Lord. Let your life bear witness to your words. Pastor Ollie rightly compared what the Israelites did to spiritual adultery. God had been so kind to them. He saved them. He entered into a covenant with them. And they spurned all of this for the worship of a false god, an idol. And though the nation of Israel will sin again in the future, I think what we see here is a beautiful picture of what repentance and faith looks like. So I want to give you three fruits of repentance that we see here. What does it look like? Three fruits of repentance. Number one, repentant people love God more than they love money. Repentant people love God more than they love money. Go back to chapter 35. Let's look at verses 20 to 29. Then the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence, and everyone who was willing and whose heart moved them came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work on the tent of meeting, and for all its service, and for the sacred garments. All who were willing, men and women alike, came and brought gold jewelry of all kinds, brooches, earrings, rings, and ornaments. They all presented their gold as a wave offering to the Lord. Everyone who had blue, purple, or scarlet yarn, or fine linen, or goat hair, ramskins dyed red, or the other durable leather, brought them. Those presenting an offering of silver or bronze brought it as an offering to the Lord, and everyone who had acacia wood for any part of the work brought it. Every skilled woman spun with her hands and brought what she had spun, blue, purple, or scarlet yarn, or fine linen. And all the women who were willing and had the skill spun the goat hair. The leaders brought onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastpiece. They also brought spices and olive oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the Israelite men and women who were willing brought to the Lord freewill offerings for all the work the Lord through Moses had commanded them to do. It's a staggering text. We don't read that Moses had to plead or cajole. He didn't didn't do what the charlatan prosperity preachers out there do and and promise the Israelites if they, if they give, then they're going to get a hundredfold more in their bank account. Doesn't do anything like that. Notice three wonderful things about the giving here. First, it's voluntary. There were certainly required offerings in Israel, but here the giving for the worship of God's temple was voluntary. It says, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him in verse 21. These phrases are repeated, so it's voluntary giving. Second, the giving was proportional. Verse 24, everyone who could make a contribution of silver and bronze brought it. In those days, money was not held mainly in currency. There were some who would have had precious metals because they had more means. Then as you look down, others just have acacia wood, which is going to be useful for things they need to build. And so they would bring that. Some of the women who have nothing to offer physically, they offer their time and their skill to do the spinning of goat's hair into yarn or linen. People gave according to what they had. 
So the giving was voluntary. It was proportional. Third notice, it was giving to the Lord. That's how the text ends there in verse 29. They brought to the Lord free will offerings. This wasn't the spirit of some who say, let me, let me first see uh, what kind of leadership structure Moses has, has made up here, and, and I kind of want to analyze uh, his bu- budget versus giving. There, there was nothing of that. They simply bring the offering because it's not ultimately about Moses. It's about them and the Lord. I remember when I was first raising support to go into mission work, I, I, I gave a presentation and uh, I was quite nervous about it. Uh, I shared what I was planning to do and what my needs were. And uh, there, there were adults listening to the presentation, but, but there was also uh, an eight-year-old boy, uh, Sean Undercuffler. And he, it was, his family was hosting the, the gathering. So he goes back into his room, and you hear the shaking of something, coins, And he comes out with two hands, walks up to me at the front, and says, I'd like to give you this. He's a bold young man. And you can imagine how moved I was. Out of all the money I ever had to raise, that $1.67 is the most unforgettable. And his parents said they had had bought him a, a Larry Burkett bank. You know, he had some he could put in the spend category and some in the save category. Well, he had dumped out the give category and given it. To me, that, that's exactly the spirit of things. Can I give this to the Lord? So good guidance for us in giving. Voluntary, proportional, to the Lord giving. Now, in some ways, this was a special event. It's not exactly the same as our regular church giving. Uh, this text is probably often used when a church has a building campaign, right? Uh, many of you probably gave sacrificially to so this building. Could be built, and we're all experiencing the benefit of that. But the point for us to take here is that the, the giving was an overflow of their repentant hearts. It represented a new relationship with money for them. You know, it's exactly how the Apostle Paul talks about giving in 2 Corinthians 9. He calls it an overflowing of many thanksgivings to God. It's funny, I just this past week was talking to a non-Christian friend uh, and inviting him to, to come to church. Uh, he told me he wouldn't come to church. I asked him why. He said, uh, because the church is all about money. And I, it kind of took me aback. He said he had gone to church uh, earlier, and he said the preachers are just in it for the money. And he, he's my friend, so I, you know, I'm kind of waiting for him to go, present company accepted. But he didn't say that, so I, was, I just was kind of floored, and I was like, well, you probably ought to come and give it another chance. I don't know many preachers that like to talk about money, but I do know that Jesus talked about money more than almost any other topic, not because he needed it in any way, but because in his own words, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Is that how you think about it? What you do with your money says a great deal about what you believe to be true and where your heart is. So repentant people love God more than their money. I think we see a second thing in these chapters, and that's that repentant people are happy to work for God. Repentant people are happy to work for God. Uh, Let's look at 
Uh, Again, chapter 35, but pick things up in verse 30. Then Moses said to the Israelites, See, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of artistic crafts. And he has given both him and Aholiab, son of Ahasamach, of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. He has filled them with skill to do all kinds of work as engravers, designers, embroiderers, in blue, purple, scarlet yarn, and fine linen, and weavers, all of them skilled workers and designers. Chapter 36. So Bezalel, Aholiab, and every skilled person to whom the Lord has given skill and ability to know how to carry out all the work of constructing the sanctuary are to do the work just as the Lord has commanded. Then Moses summoned Bezalel and Aholiab and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability and was willing to come and do the work. They received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary. And the people continued to bring freewill offerings morning after morning. So all the skilled workers who were doing all the work on the sanctuary left what they were doing and said to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord has commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order, and they sent his word throughout the camp, no man or woman is to make, any, make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more, because what they already had was more than enough to do all the work. Never heard those last two verses preached around budget time in the church. But here we are, these two men, Bezalel and Aholiab, who are gifted as craftsmen and designers. They're going to have to take the raw materials and work with them. And did you notice how the text highlighted both their skills and where their skills came from? So chapter 35, verse 31, 34, 35, chapter 36, verse 2, there's this repetition of how God filled and inspired and enabled them to do what they can do. We might stop and wonder whether if they heard that, they might be a bit offended. I mean, didn't they have to work for years, presumably, to develop these skills? I mean, I I don't think they probably had PSLE and O-levels and A-levels back in those days, but I assume they worked hard. Beloved, it's so important to remember the source of any talents and abilities that we have. At the end of the day, you and I don't have anything that we haven't received. Even if you've worked hard to improve on something the Lord has given you, it still, in its essence, in its rawest form, is a gift of God to you. Pride is so unbecoming because it lies about who we are as creatures. This text has broad application to all work, I think. I hope that you realize that a Christian view of work means doing whatever you do with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Whatever you do, you're supposed to do it for the glory of God. It doesn't matter how menial you feel like your work is, how repetitive, how frustrating work can sometimes be in this fallen world. The Christian thanks God for the ability to work and says, if I can provide for myself and have something to share with others in need, I praise God for that. 
I'm thankful for that. But the specific application here has to be for the church. The church is a place where we bring whatever we have in terms of skills, abilities, gifts. Paul's image in the New Testament is we're like a body with hands, with eyes, with feet. He says that every one of us is a part of the body and needed by the whole. You don't get rid of body parts. The key phrases in this text are found in verse 2 there, where it says, every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability and who was willing to come and do the work. So the Lord gives the ability, but the person has to be willing to come and do the work. Friend, are you willing to come and help here? With what, you ask? Well, there, there are a lot of practical things to be done. And, and we're all thankful that a whole army of people, I'm thinking about people who are not paid for the work, that they show up to get things ready for us. Many of you serve in lots of ways. Would you describe yourself as someone who is willing to work? You know, you, you can't help the church through the live stream. Some of you on live stream are, are homebound members, and we're grateful for the work you may have done for many years in this place and be able to connect with you that way. But if, if you're able-bodied, don't be on the live stream. First of all, show up. Be here if you can. But then, beloved, don't just show up on Sunday morning and then leave quickly. Get involved here. We need you because you're a gift of God to this body. You're meant to do something. There are lots of things that could be said about that, but the picture of repentance I want you to see here is a people who are eager to get in there and lock arms and work together. That's the second picture of the fruit of repentance. There's a third one I want you to see, and that's that repentant people obey with an attention to detail. Turn again to chapter 39, verse 32. We, we read it once, but I, I want to read the section now, chapter 39, verse 32. So all the work on the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was completed. The Israelites did everything just as the Lord commanded Moses. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its furnishings, its clasps, frames, crossbars, posts, and bases. The covering of ram skins dyed red and the covering of durable leather and the shielding curtain. The Ark of the Covenant with its poles and the atonement cover. The table with its articles and the bread of the presence. The pure gold lampstand with its row of lamps and all its accessories. And the olive oil for the light the gold altar, the anointing oil, the fragrant incense, and the curtain for the entrance to the tent, the bronze altar with its bronze grating, its poles and all its utensils, the basin with its stands, the curtains of the courtyard with its posts and bases, and the curtain for the entrance to the courtyard, the ropes and the tent pegs for the courtyard, all the furnishings for the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. The woven garments worn for ministering in the sanctuary, both the sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons when serving as priests. The Israelites had done all the work just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses inspected the work 
and saw that they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. So Moses blessed them. We're meant to feel the repetition here as we read through these. As the Lord commanded Moses, the Israelites had done all the work just as the Lord had commanded. They had done it just as the Lord commanded. Obedience is essential to the covenant. We remember chapter 19 when God said, if you obey my word, you will be my treasured possession and you'll be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But it's a remarkable change from the disobedience of making a golden calf and worshiping as their hearts saw fit. Now it seems that their obedience is right away, all the way, with a happy heart. That's the way we try to teach our kids what obedience looks like. Kids, you know that your obedience to your parents is modeled on obedience to God. The the same is true for all of us as we think about obeying governing authorities or any other authority. The the fruit of obedience grows, grows from a heart that loves God and is grateful for his forgiveness. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments. It's striking how many professing Christians think that their relationship with God is independent from how they actually live their lives. God says you should be meaningfully joined with a, a local assembly of believers in the church. But they say, yeah, I'm, I'm too busy in my life for that right now. God says that marriage is between one man and one woman for life. But right now, in my office and my community, it's, it's, it's more convenient to have a broader view than that. God defines sexuality in the marriage covenant as the only appropriate expression. But that's not my desire right now. Does obedience in our financial life matter? In our dating life? In in how we speak to each other in marriage? Gentleness? Compassion? Yeah, all of that matters. The kind of detailed obedience that that you and I, when we walk out from here and we we go to live our lives in, in lots of different arenas, the detailed obedience matters. It's the fruit of a heart that says, I, I'm so grateful for what God has done, forgiving me. I'd like to live for him. If, if I can understand what his word is, I'm going to put it into action exactly as much as I can. That's what we see the people doing here. Well, this repentance that we see on the part of the Israelites, it, it's a wonderfully encouraging picture, isn't it? There's a fascinating text later in the Old Testament uh, in the the prophet Hosea where God is actually speaking to Israel after they've again sinned and been sent into exile. He refers back to this, this group, this Exodus group in Hosea 2, 14 and 15. He says, He's speaking about how he's going to allure, try to to win Israel back. He says, therefore, I'm now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came out of Egypt. The the response of Israel in, in Exodus here is look 
back at by God as a paradigm of repentance. It's what he wants for you and I to respond to him this way. So again, we have to ask ourselves, are we repentant people? Do our lives show the fruit of repentance? That's point number one. Let's ask secondly this morning where all that repentance leads. And for that, turn to chapter 40, verse 34, the dwelling place of God. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. The tabernacle is finished. It's erected in the first part of chapter 40, according to all of the specifications of God. And Moses had blessed the people. Remember, he, he prays over them in light of their generosity and their work and their obedience. It shows them to be a repentant people. Well, these final verses show us God's response. The cloud by day and the, the, the cloud lit up by fire at night had guided the Israelites to Mount Sinai. We're told here that it comes and settles over the tabernacle or tent of meeting, as it's called in verse 34. And it's the glory of the Lord that fills it, the visible manifestation of the Lord's presence. Uh, there are some simple but powerful truths in these final verses. First, we see very clearly that God accepts the repentance of his people. God had told Moses that he was renewing the covenant. Moses had told the people that in chapter 34, but the, the fresh arrival of the glory cloud would have been the moment when the people realized they were truly forgiven. They would again have had the assurance of God's forgiveness and presence with them. He was pleased with their repentance. You know, you and I are often in the situation of needing assurance from God. The, the promise of the gospel is that if we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, trust in what he did on the cross to pay for sins, that God will pardon us and restore a relationship with us. We will be forgiven. We are given the gift of eternal life. If, if you're here this morning and are not a Christian, that's the most important thing for you to understand. There's nothing that you and I can do to earn favor with God. There, there's nothing we can do to cause our, our good deeds to somehow outweigh our bad deeds, somehow get a, a passing grade with God. That's not the way it works. You and I are in this hopeless situation of having this unpayable debt to God because of our sins, because we haven't lived the way God says that we should live. But he knew we were without hope, and so he sends his son Jesus to live a perfect life, to, to live the life that you and I should have lived, a life free from sin, and then to die on a cross where he takes on himself all of the payment for sin. So that if any of us turns from sin and trusts in what Jesus did, God forgives 
and pardons us. That, that is the, the news that matters more than any other news. And I pray that you'll believe it this morning. But brothers and sisters, having believed that good news, what happens when you and I sin again? Because we do. We in this life still have the sinful nature living inside of us. We need to regularly turn away from sin and trust in that good news of the gospel afresh. But sin does affect our assurance, doesn't it? When when we are walking in sin and we have not repented of that sin, we are living in unrepentant sin, we have no assurance that we are God's children because the continuing of unrepentant sin may show us to never have been a believer in the first place. It it, it doesn't mean that a, a true believer who is in that state isn't going to be saved. They just don't have the assurance of that at the moment. And that's why, beloved, we should never tolerate sin. We should never toy with sin. We should should turn from it as soon as the Spirit makes us aware of it. One of the, the great reasons for that is because our assurance returns, not in some sort of a visible form as it was for the Israelites here with the glory cloud, but with the Spirit in our lives encouraging us afresh that we are God's children. We sang earlier in that hymn, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Those are words of assurance to cling to. God accepts the repentance of his people. The second thing we see here is that God guides his people. He guides his people. Look again at verse 36. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle... They would set out. The cloud did not lift. They did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. Uh, Let's not forget that Exodus closes and their journey begins in many ways to the promised land. And they were in need of his guidance going forward. He provided it. You and I are no less in need of guidance, though we have neither a visible glory cloud nor the physical presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in the way that the apostles did in the New Testament. But God is no less committed to guiding you and I. His inspired word is given to us for that purpose. In the Psalms, Psalm 119, it is described as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. God's Spirit indwells the believer in part for the purpose of guidance. He provides us brothers and sisters in Christ to help with practical wisdom and to pray for us as we make decisions. All of us face many decisions about discerning God's will. And it's an important topic worth studying well. It may be the kind of thing that is worth visiting the bookstall on level three afterwards and 
and asking Sam and his minions what books are out there to help you think more about discerning God's will, and not just for questions of who you should marry and what job you should do. Not being able to cover all of that right now, what I want to underline is that in this text, God is committed to his people, to guiding his people through all of their travels, through all of the wilderness. You should underline that in your Bible, and you should be convinced of it in your own life. When Jesus said he would be with us always to the very end of the age, in part he means so that he can guide us, he can lead us, he doesn't leave us alone. It's a precious truth. The third and final truth we see in this last section is that God's people are not home yet. They're not home yet. God had said he would dwell with his people, and he fulfills that here, at least partially. But there's something jarring here in the text. You you may have noticed that it says when the the glory of God fills the temple that Moses couldn't get in. You know, in, in in the previous temporary tent of meeting, Moses was inside the tent and the glory cloud would come on top of it. There was still a a separation between Moses and God. Well, here, God fills the tabernacle. Moses is outside. Temporarily, he can't even get in. So we should understand what is happening as a true but incomplete bringing together of God and man. The next book of the Bible is Leviticus. It it will describe the offerings that the, the priests have to do And how in that most holy place of the tabernacle on the the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim that that God truly meets with his people. It's just that that meeting is partial. It's incomplete. Even Moses, favored as he was by God, is ultimately an insufficient mediator, isn't he? Because he's a sinner himself. He cannot see God's face and live any more than you and I can see God's face and live. And so while the tabernacle promised intimacy, it also speaks of the distance that remains as man still dwells east of Eden. The distance would remain for Israel, even as they make it to the promised land and they build the temple under King Solomon. And even when, in the fullness of time, when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, And his glory was seen, the glory of the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ. The distance was not fully and finally overcome. After providing purification for sins at the cross, Jesus returned to heaven, where he sits at God's mighty right hand. And even after the sending of his Spirit to dwell in us, the precious gift The people of God, the the church, are described by the Apostle Paul as a dwelling in which God truly dwells by his Spirit. You and I together experience the the Spirit-filled life and reality that is God with us. It's true, and yet it remains partial. It remains incomplete. Because you see, friends, the story is not finished. I began with Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. My favorite scene in the book is also uh, oft overlooked. Uh, It's when Samwise Gamgee wakes up in the house of healing after completing his quest. And his friend Gandalf asks him if he's okay. 
difficult words for me to read. They're, they're very moving for me. But this is what Tolkien writes. Sam lay back and stared with open mouth, and for a moment, between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I myself was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And that question is perfect. That's a perfect question. I, I don't know exactly what J.R.R. Tolkien's theology was, but that's a perfect question because that's the question that hangs over all of human history from the fall into sin in the garden to the exodus of the children of Israel from Egypt to the time of Christ to the church age where you and I sit right now. It's a question for the hospital. It's a question for the crematorium. It's a question for the war zone. It's the question for the divorce courts. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What we mean when we ask that question is, will God again bring about the restoration of all things where he dwelt with us in a full and final and complete way that will take all the sin and the suffering and the death and evil and cause it to become unmade, unreal, untrue. Revelation chapter 20, 21, verse 6. A loud voice from the throne say, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. For the former things have passed away. Everything sad will come true. Because God will dwell with his repentant people forever. And we will need no sequel.